0: It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of John uh, in the New Testament there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we are in chapter 6 for our study today. There was a a health food restaurant and they had put a billboard outside their restaurant uh, that said, eat here and live a long life. Well, not to be outdone, the barbecue joint next door decided they were going to put a sign up as well and they said, you know, eat here and die happy either live long or die happy. I don't know which one would be the best, but we always talk about food. I mean, that wonderful, glorious food. Everybody likes food. They've got their favorite foods. They've got the kinds that they don't like to eat. But for some reason, food, it, it, it seems like a curse for, for some people. They look at an apple and they gain weight. For other people, they can eat everything. I mean, they can eat all those pork steaks and hot dogs and brats and hamburgers that Sean was talking about, and they don't gain an ounce. And, and, but we all have different ways in which we do food. But the bottom line is this. We all need to eat, right? And I'll admit it, I enjoy eating as well. Well, there was this man who'd stopped by a, a local restaurant, and he'd ordered a meal. And with the meal, the restaurant would also provide a, a, a slice of bread for you. Well, he, he got his meal, and he looked out at that slice of bread, and he said, Well, that's good, but I, I like bread. That's not enough. So the waiter went back, and he got some more bread and, and brought it out to him for that day. And, and it was just four slices, and he wasn't satisfied. Well, the next day he came in again, and this time the waiter remembered what was going on. So when he ordered his meal and he brought it out to the gentleman, he put six slices of bread on there. And the guy says, you know, I really enjoy bread, and you're kind of being a little stingy on this. So they thought, well, we'll do something next time he comes, sir, we promise. Well, then when he came again, this time the waiter remembered him and saw him come through the door. And so he went to the back and he got a basket of bread and put all this bread in there for him. And the man looked at it and he said, well, you know, that's, that's good, but, but I really enjoy bread and that's just probably not enough. So they decided they were going to do something. So the waiter told the owner of the restaurant. The owner of the restaurant decided he had a friend who could do something for them. So they went out and they baked a six foot long, three foot wide loaf of bread. And when the man came in for his meal, the owner and the waiter and a couple other guys from the back, they came out carrying this big loaf of bread, thinking this is going to get him for sure. And they were just, you know, thought, oh, this is fun. When the man looked at it, he says, oh, we're back down to one piece of bread. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Well, I want to give you just a few things about bread. Every culture on earth loves bread. We all love it. I mean, it's everywhere around that bread is. Now, the average American, listen to this, the average American can eat 53 pounds of bread a year. (laughs) Wow, that's right. 53 pounds of bread a year. Matter of fact, America alone eats about 34 million loaves of bread a day. I'm in the wrong business. I ought to have a bakery, right? But think about this. Now, if we, if we put all this together, now, now that's loaves of bread. Now, that's not counting rolls and croissants and donuts and cake and everything else that would be classified as a bread, all right? But that comes to, when we put it all together, that they're eating, it comes to approximately 12.5 billion loaves of bread in America alone each year. 12.5 billion Every nation has their staple food of bread. Mexico's got their tortillas. Israel has their matzo bread. And so we we all know about it. Everybody likes their bread. Let me give you a few facts about bread. A family of four can eat for 10 years on the bread that is produced from one acre of wheat. One acre of wheat, the flour that comes from that, can feed a family of four for 10 years. Interesting. Interesting. In 1941, the U.S. government got involved with bread making. And none of us are surprised. But they decided they passed a law requiring these bakeries to add niacin, thiamine, riboflavin, and iron to their bread. And so that's kind of what we get nowadays. We get this improved bread, this enriched bread. Now bread was once prized so much that it was used as currency. Which is where we get the idea that money sometimes is called bread. Bread right, and you're rolling in the dough. In the 13th century England, bread was a vital part of their life and the bakeries would produce the bread only. People began complaining because it seemed like some of the bakeries were shorting them on their bread. Their loaves were getting smaller. We don't know anything about that, do we? You know, they get smaller, but they put in a basket usually 12 loaves of bread. That's what you would order, you would get. So King Henry III decided that he was going to institute a law against bakers that shortened their customers the amount of bread. And the punishment sometimes was beatings or even imprisonment. So if you were an honest baker, you still had some concerns that people might... Uh, complain about you not giving them enough bread. So the bakers decided they would do something different. Instead of just putting 12 loaves of bread into a basket, they threw in a 13th. Therefore, we get our baker's dozen. Just a little history for you. But back in the days of Jesus, bread was also very important. Now, now if we need a a loaf of bread, we just simply go down to the grocery store, grab one off the shelf, and take it home. I mean, I did that the other night. Very simple, very quick, and it was done. But in the time that Jesus was alive, it wasn't just run down to your local grocery store, grab a loaf of bread, and go home because people usually made their own bread themselves, which meant they had to take the wheat and they had to crush it, make the flour, then they'd have to bake it. They had to provide the wood to get the fire going because they didn't have the stoves and the ovens like we do today. And so they had to get things at the right temperature set so they would not burn their bread, but yet it would fully bake it. It was an all-day process just to bake bread. And that brings us to our story today. So when we begin to look at this story, Jesus, it, just kind of a little preview to it. Uh, this is in Matthew ch- or John chapter 6. Jesus has gone in there. He's been teaching people. They've been out in this huge, massive crowd there along the mountainside as they're listening to him, him preach and teach and everybody forgot something to eat except a little boy who brought with him a little, his lunchbox there. People were getting hungry and Jesus said, well, go get them something to eat. And his disciples are going, Jesus, you've got to be crazy. It would take at least eight months' wages to buy enough food to feed all these people. I mean, there are 5,000 men that we counted, plus the women and children. He said, well, go find something. So what happens? Andrew comes back with a boy. He's got these five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, that'll do. And he begins breaking the bread and the fish and sending it out. And he feeds everybody. Finally everybody's had their full, and Jesus says, Okay, just collect that what's left over, and they did. So they they brought together twelve basket full of leftover. What a miracle. The people thought, this is amazing. And so they, they, they decide they're going to make him king at that very moment. So they get all tussled around and they're trying to figure out, let's get him and let's take him and make him be our king by force. But he kind of slips through and goes up on the mountain to get away from him. And he tells his disciples to head out and, and go back to Capernaum across the sea. And so they get in their boat and they leave. People are still looking for Jesus and they can't find him. So the incident that we're about to look at turns into one of the most pivotal points in the life of Jesus. This little story, this, that what takes place after he feeds these 5,000 people and they don't get to make him king, something now changes in how they perceive him. So no longer is he going to be popular. Now the first thing we notice is that the bread of life does not spoil nor does it feed the physical body. Let's begin in our book of John, chapter 6, at verse 22. On the next day, this is after he fed the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Now, other boats from Tiberias, that's on the other side of the sea, other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given them thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly Truly I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God. Well, not much has changed in 2,000 years. People are still searching for Jesus, and they're also still trying to find out how they can get their next meal made. All right, We're we're still hungry, so we want a quick fix for things. When morning came and the people can't find Jesus, they knew he was there, but he's gone somehow, and they're going to search for him, and they knew he didn't get in the boat, so where'd he go? Well, after searching for a while, they finally get in these boats that come from Tiberius and they head over to Capernaum to try and see if Jesus made his way back there because they knew that that's where he had been staying. And so their search led him there. And when they find him there at Capernaum, they're kind of dumbfounded because they can't figure out how he got there. Well, little do they know that during the night when the storm began to rage around the sea that brought these Tiberius boats over, Jesus went out walking on the water, and he met up with his disciples, got in the boat, and they landed there by Capernaum. They just knew that he he didn't get out there. But somehow they found him there. The people have come looking for Jesus, not because they wanted him to know him anymore, or to even proclaim him to be their Messiah, but they came to him because, well, they were hungry. And it's morning. And they haven't had anything to eat since last night. And so we know that he can give us food, so let's, let's go get him and he'll feed us again. Matter of fact, that was probably the best fish sandwich they ever had. So they went there looking for him, not to get to know him better, but they went there because they were hungry. At least that's the, what we perceive in the conversation that's going to take place. You see, every day people get up, they go to work, they go home, they sleep and they do it all over again. And why do we do that? So that we have the money to pay for the food that we need to eat tomorrow. That's just the process of life. Now, we're working for our daily bread the same as the people of Galilee did over 2,000 years ago. Let's look at verse 27, though. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. They had this false assumption that God required them to do certain things in order for their needs to be met. So what do we got to do to do God's work? What what do we want us to do? We'll do whatever it takes. All right? But they they want that food that, that is offered there. And so that's what they ask him there in verse 28. So what must we do to be doing the works of God? Well... It quickly becomes clear to them that Jesus is referring to something different than what they had anticipated with all their conversation. <clears throat> They're thinking earthly work. What can I do with my physical hands, with my physical body? What can I accomplish? And Jesus is saying it's not about that. But what does he say the work of God is? And it's interesting. The work of God is this. That you believe in him whom he has sent. So if you're going to work for God, what do you got to do? You believe that Jesus is the one whom God has sent into this world. That's the work that we're required to do by God. Believing God is the the one work and the only work that man has to do to obey Him. And it's not just merely consenting to an idea and the extent of of arguing against it, but it's believing and accepting that so that you're willing to live by that standard. And if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you're going to follow Him, you're going to do as He asks, and your lifestyle is going to pattern His. That's the work. Believing on Christ is not just a single act of the mind, but it's a continuous state of trusting in Him and being faithful to Him. And if you go and read the book of James, you discover in the second chapter that your faith, without any other kind of action behind it, is dead. It's useless. So faith and works go hand in hand. Because you believe in Jesus, now you're going to act like you believe in Jesus. And that's what he's telling us here. The Jews had become obsessed by observing the law. They knew that that they needed to take the law as far forward as they can in obedience so they can get to heaven. I mean, that was their whole purpose, that God gave them the law through Moses, and so they needed to obey it without failure if they wanted to get to heaven. They were obsessed with obedience and doing everything completely literal as they could. They were convinced that by following the law faultlessly, they would gain favor with the Lord But they misunderstood a few things about the law. So let's turn our Bibles into Romans chapter 3. So uh, hold on to John 6 because we're going to come back. But in Romans chapter 3 we're going to discover that that, that now we know, he says there beginning in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now listen here. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Because now, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You see, the righteousness of God, he says, through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first purpose of the law is this. It's to give us a knowledge of sin and to realize that we have failed. That's what the law is about. To show you that you can't be righteous. For there is no distinction, he says. The law is impossible to complete because we all fall short of it. That's the first thing we discover about the law. Now jump over to Romans chapter 7. Look at verse 12 through 14, and Paul tells us that the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, oh, by no means, Paul says. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So not only is the law given so it gives us a knowledge of sin, but the second purpose of the law is that it's spiritual. And it makes us carnal or people of the flesh. So it's something totally different. It's not of this flesh. It's something that goes beyond that. The Jews, they were working with the law of the flesh, thinking that their actions in the flesh would enable them to get to heaven and have eternity with God. As long as I do the things that I'm supposed to do and I'm a good boy, I get to be receiving my reward. They were laboring for the bread that would perish, but they need to do something that is different. For everything that is done, the flesh is going to die, because that's all the flesh can do it can live and die but it's going to die. Jesus brings everlasting life. And so he's telling these people, if you want to live, you need to work and search for the food that's going to give you eternity. The food that you're working for right now, it, it, you're, just, you're, you're going to be hungry again. And you're going to be thirsty again. And you're going to die unless you keep eating it. Right? So they continue to ask him for a sign for a miracle. As if what he had did the day before wasn't miracle enough. I mean can you imagine sitting there? We're estimating somewhere between 15 and 20,000 people possibly could have been on that mountainside when Jesus began breaking the bread and the fish and passing it out. And if you can see he took one little boy's lunchbox and fed a multitude of people. And You think, now that's unique. But they've come to him, why? Do it again. Do it again. We'd like, we'd like to see that again. We're hungry. They don't get what he's trying to say to them. See, they want him to, to prove himself again, that they, they can't comprehend who he is, and, the, and they have him right in front of them. And so what they're wanting is more manna from heaven. In John chapter 6, verse 30-35, through 35, let's read what it says there. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Well, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst again. You see, in their state of poor understanding and unbelief, they just don't get it. And it was probably disappointing for them to hear his answer. They want to see, here, here, I brought some loaves, can you multiply those? Fill everybody with these. They want to see another side. Do it again, do it again, do it again. That's all they're wanting, to satisfy themselves. And they don't quite understand what he is saying here. In other words, instead of saying, let me give you more food to eat, I will give you the bread of life that will give you eternity. And you're never going to hunger, and you're never going to thirst again. Well, we want that. Go ahead and make it. Let's see it. No, no, you don't get it. It's me. He's offering himself to them, and they don't see what he's really offering. They've lost it somewhere. But the truth is, the greatest gift that they could already have, they had right there before them in him. And if they only knew it, he had satisfied their physical hunger once, and now he's willing to satisfy their eternal hunger and sustain them in life. After all, the scripture does say, man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Well, to receive this bread of life, you have to come and you have to believe. So verse 35 through 40, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe and that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Pay attention. This is what he's going to tell. You ever want to know what, God, what does God really want? Jesus is going to lay it out here. This is the will of my Father, he says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now that's the bread of life that comes from heaven. It comes from the Father. Just as the manna came during that wilderness journey of the people of Israel for 40 years while they were in the desert, God provided for their daily needs. And he sustained them over that course of time with the manna that he gave to them. It was a unique thing that went on. So they're in a desert. You can't grow crops in a desert. Plus they're on the move all the time. So how does God feed them? In the morning when they wake up, they go outside their tent and they see the ground covered with some strange stuff. Manna. They can go down, they can gather up as much as they want that they can eat that day. I mean, they can eat until their eyes are filled with manna. And so they can go out and they, they, they collect it and they prepare it and they make all kinds of meals with it for that day. But if they try to keep that manna for tomorrow, when they opened up their jar looked in the bowl, it was maggots. God provides for you today and today only. You don't necessarily need to hoard for tomorrow. He'll meet your needs now. Well, the only day that was different was on Friday. And he told them on Friday, go out and collect enough for today and for Saturday, the Sabbath day, because I don't want you doing any work on the Sabbath. So on Friday, they would go and they would gather in extra. And when they woke up Saturday morning, it went, oh, we're safe. It's good. But if they tried to keep it for Sunday, maggots. Daily, God provided for them. And Jesus wants them to know, he will provide for you for all eternity. Jesus is the bread of life that sustains life, the life of the kingdom of God, and he commands us to come to him and believe in him. I mean, he's making this clear parallel to those who come, they'll never hunger, to those who believe, they will never thirst. We put our faith and our trust in him and we follow him and he takes care of us. Now, turn into Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 55. Beginning in verse 1 through 4, and God says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for which that does not satisfy? Now listen diligently to me, God says, and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food incline your ear and come to me hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David behold I made him a witness to the peoples a leader and commander for the peoples now Isaiah 55 explains to us this everlasting covenant that God had established with him when you listen to God you get this relationship with Him. All right? And this is what Jesus is talking about, that people need to come to Him, they need to believe in Him, that He has come from God in heaven, into the flesh, into this world, they put their faith and their trust in Him. He's going to provide for them for all eternity. And they will never hunger and they will never thirst. But you've got to follow Him. Now, the Jewish teachers of the law, they believed that the law was the bread of life. And Moses was the great lawgiver. He gave the law and he gave the bread which perished every day. But grace and truth and everlasting life in that kind of covenant did not come from Moses. But Jesus is introducing it to them today. So to truly live, he's going to tell them that you need to eat of the bread of life. So look at verse 47 through 51. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Your fathers they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I I' the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, now a little bit of difference here. You see, the children, as they ate the, uh, the manna during their time in the wilderness, they ate that manna for 40 years. And if they had not eaten it, they would have died. God provided for them to keep them alive during that time frame. But Jesus is the bread that comes down from heaven. He's the incarnate one, the holy one. He is the one in the flesh, God. I mean, He's, he's 100% God, and yet he's also 100% man. And that's far, hard for us to comprehend, even though we, we see it through the eyes of both the Old and the New Testament, but it had to have been hard for them to understand. How can you be? This one will do that. This, this bread is his flesh, he says. He doesn't use the word body here. I mean, so he draws a comparison to what John says earlier in John chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, as he often refers to himself, is the Son of Man, at least in the book of John. He is the Messiah, the Christ. He is God in the flesh. And what he's saying is, I came out of heaven, and now I'm into earth. And the only way that you're going to have eternal life is you've got to eat of my flesh. Now in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's through Jesus that we find that life begins. It's through Jesus that we find that life becomes eternal. We've got to put our faith and our trust in him. So in order for us to be saved, he had to give himself up in this world so that we could live. In order to live, in order to be saved, we have to partake of Jesus in the flesh. And so he says, you've got to eat of my flesh. And that may sound like it's not a very common thing for us to hear, but, but think about what was like for the Jews to hear it. I mean, it, it would have sounded completely absurd. I mean, earlier we took communion. Remember, we had the, the wafer, the bread, and we had the, the juice that represented his blood. And we've been doing this for years, to remember Jesus by doing that. But if you were a first century Jew there in Capernaum listening to Jesus tell this story, what you're hearing is, unless you're willing to take a bite out of me, you can't get to heaven. And they're going, cannibalism? Hmm. I don't think so, Jesus. I think I'm going to pass on that. I'm not really into eating people. I'm not into drinking their blood. I'm not into this kind of stuff. And so as a result of what he's saying, they don't quite get it. They're thinking still in the physical sense, not the, not the spiritual aspect that Jesus is speaking in. He's speaking of heavenly things, but all they can concentrate is on the earthly stuff. Uh, I don't want to eat your flesh. I don't want to drink your blood. I don't want any of this stuff. And so there in John 6:52 the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're completely flabbergasted the concept of eating his flesh, but they're not understanding what he's really saying. And what he's really saying is his flesh has to die, it has to be broken for them and his blood has to be shed and spilt as an offering for them and as a sacrifice for their sins. And see, this has been their foolishness ever since the very beginning. We, we work in the flesh, and we toil, and we labor so that we can feed our bodies. That's the natural process. But Jesus is saying, you're thinking carnal. You're thinking fleshly. I'm talking spiritually. And they just didn't see it. However, Eating of God was not a strange concept for them. It was often a way in which they described their relationship with God and how they could, could connect with him. So you have in Psalm 34, verse eight: 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So back to John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, So whoever feeds on me, I also will live because of him. He also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now in verses 47 through 51, the children of Israel had to eat manna during that time. But now something is different. We go to 53 to 59. He's telling them that that he adds this concept now of not only eating my flesh, but drinking my blood. Blood is indicative when it speaks of God, of a new covenant, of a promise, of a contract that he is making. So blood has to be in any covenant there is with God. So over in Hebrews chapter 9, we find this is written. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works and serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems him from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, and since it's not a force as long as the one who made it is alive, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself... So Jesus is introducing to them his blood as a sacrifice for them, understanding that this is a new covenant he's creating, eternal life, beyond what the law could give you, because all the law could do is give you death. It doesn't offer eternal life. So you can't live for righteousness there. The only way you can get it is through this new covenant that Jesus is offering. And blood has to be a part of it. But the blood is always a part of covenant. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm in the New Testament, that his blood covers me. Because if we were still under the Old Testament, the blood literally, literally would cover you. Because they would take the blood of the, calf, of the calves and the goats and they would sprinkle it not only on the altar, but also on the people and on the tent and on everything that was a part of their aspect of worship. It was a bloody mess. Jesus' blood now has been sprinkled upon our hearts. Cleansing us from a guilty conscience. Providing for us righteousness and everlasting life. Blood is used to seal the covenant and it's necessary for the remission of sin. By partaking of his flesh and blood, we have everlasting life. So Christ is the covenant sacrificed and is God's provision for our sustenance to keep us alive so in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verse 4 Peter says by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire now through the Holy Spirit's work we receive his life and partake of his promise so when you eat of this bread of life will live in you and you in him. A total different relationship that that is presented here in all of this. Jesus is telling us that if we eat of his flesh and if we drink of his blood, then he will abide is the word that's used. He will live, make his dwelling place in us. and He will live within us and we will live within him. I mean, it's a significant because it's a sharing of his death and his life. So listen what he says in Galatians chapter two, as Paul writes, beginning at verse 19, "For through the law Paul says, "I died to the law, so that I might live to Christ." And then he goes on and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Eating and drinking is a personal act. Eating and drinking is a personal act of faith designed to bring you into a closer, personal relationship with Jesus. And when that happens, the old self, the old life that you lived is died, and it's buried, and it's gone. And we're united with that in this beautiful picture of baptism as we're being buried and we're we're dead to ourselves, but then we are also raised to new life in Him. And we can live then eternally. Christ lives in me, and I live in Him by faith. Jesus shows himself here in John as the revealer of the Father and the redeemer of the world where he gives, he gives life where death once reigned. So his statements while he's speaking in heavenly terms the people just don't understand. And so there is this pivotal moment now in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. You see, up to this point, his popularity has been growing and increasing, and people are coming in from everywhere. I mean, they're making journeys that are 90 miles away just to come and hear him, and they're walking there just to be a part of him and to hear him speak and to see the miracles and all that. Now, at this conversation that he has with the people here in Capernaum, there in that synagogue, all of a sudden changes things, and they go, we don't want any of that. And so the scripture tells us that many of them then leave and they walk away from him. John 6, 60 through 71. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And the words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, John makes a little side note here in this parenthetical statement here. Listen to what he has to say. He says, Hmm. For Jesus knew from the beginning who's, who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus then says to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, well, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he was one of the 12 and was going to betray him. The truth is, he scared and offended many of those people, and so they walked away. The thousands that could not wait to to be around him all of a sudden say, ah, I don't think this is worth it. And they turn their backs on him and walk away. So many of them are going that he even looks to his 12 disciples and says, do you guys want to leave too? Everybody's walking away. see, Jesus had to die in the flesh, but we must join him and die in the Spirit so that we can live in the flesh by faith for him. The people who were there that day, they were only searching for signs and wonders that would satisfy their fleshly needs. They weren't thinking about eternity. It's amazing how our hunger can cause us to lose thought of what we need to focus on. Right, And so he sees many of those who have traveled with him leave and, 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 and part of him seems sorry to see them leave even though he knew who it was that truly believed in him. And even one of the guys that was the closest with him Judas, why didn't he leave? John 6, 68 and 69, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go And you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to you to know that you are the Holy One of God. They began to understand what it means that he is the bread of life. Not just life here, but life that's everlasting. And we know that that which is holy belongs to God and to God alone. So how do we partake of that? Jesus embodies the holiness of God whom Israel confessed. And to confess that Jesus is the Holy One of God, according to that knowledge, he then is God is what he's saying. And after all they had seen and heard they now know that Jesus is God in the context of the gospel as a whole the Holy One of God has been consecrated by our Father in Heaven set apart for this work to come into this world so that we might be able to feast upon Him. To taste and see and know that our Lord is good. So how do we respond to Him? Well do you Accept him and walk with him, or do you reject him and walk away? I mean, that's your choice. It's he who you want to rely upon to provide for you daily? You know, we pray that prayer. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what this day? Our daily bread. God provides daily for us. But are you eating at His table? I I pray that you begin to see Jesus for who He is as we go through this book of John and discover His identity by how he, He tells people just flat out who He is. But many people continue to walk away. And I pray that we don't walk away, but we learn to walk closer. Not only in his steps, but side by side. I'm going to have our invitation for you. decision you need to make, well, I, don't let it go. I can't say this enough. Because you don't know if you're going to have an opportunity to surrender yourself to God tomorrow or tonight, next year. But Jesus has provided for you an opportunity to understand what eternity is all about. He's given his life for us. He is the bread that we need.